Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say we have with us Pim Demore. He's the co-founder of Corporate Rebels and author of the newly published Make Work More Fun. Pim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. <laughs> First, I should ask what's the story with the... I see you've got a new camper van on LinkedIn this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we Rolling. just... Uh, yeah, we wanted to put uh, freedom and trust a little bit uh, higher in our, uh, or a bit more to the forefront in our company. So we uh, uh, bought an old camper van, gave it a new paint job, and also turned the interior into something that looks a bit nicer. And now we have a mobile office slash camper van. So we love to do kite surfing. Now we can actually combine it with, uh, with work, which is perfect for us. Yeah, that's brilliant. You're really walking, uh, walking your talk with that. It's uh... So it's got tons of uh, interaction on on LinkedIn, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. I think it speaks to a lot of people, and uh, a lot of people seem a bit jealous with the uh, the freedom you get with that. I think so, and that was the word that came through reading your book, "Make More Work." This idea of freedom, uh, and that really symbolizes it, I suppose. That camper van, doesn't it? It's, it's. Yeah. So we didn't really buy it because of that reason, um, as a as as a symbol or as a like an act of rebellion, as we like to say. But it actually is, I think, um, and it speaks very much for how we want to do business ourselves. Um, and obviously, as we talk a lot about pioneering organization, we try to be one ourselves as well. And we think it's vitally important that you spend your time in places where you actually love to be, um, also when you're doing work. So if you can combine your one of your biggest hobbies, which uh, for us is kite surfing, and can do that also in combination with the work, which is for a big part of what we do at least is writing and researching um, when combined the two. So we actually, uh, uh, first of all, bought it very much from just from enthusiasm, just this crazy idea that I had when I came back from a holiday. Um, and then we quickly turned it into something that can actually symbolize freedom in the workplace. So uh, it's, an, it's a nice, uh, um, how do you say this in English? Um, killing two birds with one stone. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's the expression. And, uh, and when you say us, well, I mean, your co-author is, is juice juice? Am I getting that no, right? Again, the totally wrong. Yoast. Yoast. Okay, Yoast. Uh, so Yoast uh, and yourself wrote the book, and you founded, of course, Corporate Rebels. So we should we start there? Yeah, where when you first sort of struck out um, for, for Corporate Rebels? Yeah, yeah. So how it all began? It's it, four years ago when we started it, and it was really born out of frustration. So frustration with the way that the large organizations that we back then worked in structured so we came out of university and both had technical engineering degrees so myself I studied industrial engineering and management science and Joost studied nanotechnology so we both um, did something else did something different um, started to work for two different companies and have already known each other for a very long time since we were 12 years old but and I've always been good friends and we got to talk about the frustration that we both experienced in our workplaces so we liked the job itself, but we didn't like the organizations and how they were structured. So the fact that everything was focused on making more profits for shareholders, the fact that there was no freedom whatsoever in doing our um, job the way we saw fit, or for example, determining your own working hours was really impossible, the places where we worked. So we felt it was a bit childish how we were treated there. And um, especially if you've been educated um, and if you've grown up in a very free environment, it's kind of hard to then all of a sudden conform to these, um, let's say, outdated and hierarchical workplaces. Okay, so, so I hadn't realized that in your story. So you, you, you felt you'd, you'd grown up with a lot of freedom, freedom as kids. Is, is that part of this story here then? Yeah, I think so. I think that's part of it because that's um, something, at least if I look at myself, like I, when I grew up, I always got a lot of trust in whatever I, um, stupid decision I was making. Um, my parents were already very much, always very much behind the ideas, um, and they always had a bit of an attitude like, "Okay, whatever it is, you'll probably figure out a way to do it." Um, and then, if you can do that still in your university degrees and your education, and um, then you get into the workplace, and all of a sudden this changes, and there's a manager who is telling you exactly what to do and how to do it. Um, and there's a company who tells you when to be where and how to do your job according to all the rules and the processes. That's a bit contradictory. So it didn't really work for me. Um, and also for not for Yoast. 
So we really then decided, okay, this is not something we want to continue doing for 40 more years. So let's find a way to, to work differently. And, and that's when we actually started Corporate Rebels with the idea, let's visit workplaces and pioneers who are working radically different, who can show us that there is actually a different way of working out there, that you can structure organizations completely different to, than to what most organizations are doing. And that you can also be not just creating an environment where people love to be, but that you can at the same time also be very successful as a company. So uh, that's what we've been doing now for four years. So we've been traveling around the world to visit all kinds of cool workplaces to understand how you can actually organize work differently. So people are more motivated um, and love to actually contribute to whatever it is that the organization tries to do. Right. So that's it in a very small nutshell what we do. Right. Yes. And your, your book is packed with stories, incredible stories of the places you visited. And uh, I mean, I'm familiar with some of them, but it was great to read them again and really get the first-hand stories. Um, what, what, I suppose, who, who was the favorite character of the people you met? Who did you love the most of, of all those you met? Um, well, one of, my, one of my favorite ones was the guy we met in, uh, in Belgium. And we went to visit the, the Ministry of Social Security in Brussels. His name is Frank van Massenhoven, and he's, he has been transforming the department with the people working in that organization for about 15 years. And he has recently resigned, or he went with, uh, how do you call it? Um, he retired. Um, but he was one of my favorite characters because he has been turning the organization upside down without telling anybody outside the organization. Um, so a real rebel. He said, if I... If we want to change and transform this organization into a workplace based on a lot of freedom, a lot of trust, then it's probably a good idea not to tell anybody about it because people will start uh, arguing and they will try to interfere. So they said, well, let's just fly under the radar for a bit. Let's see if it works. And if it works, we can show to people, okay, this is not just this crazy way of working, but it also has a lot of benefits to what we do. Um, And I kind of like that attitude to just go for it and uh, rather ask for forgiveness than permission up front. Yeah, and there's sort of something subversive about it, right? He's not going to tell anybody that's uh, yeah, yeah. that appealed, did it? Yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. And uh, and you've been all over in in and camper vans important, right? Because uh, you you took, you've, you've used uh, I suppose different camper vans on your travels. Yeah, so one of the first trips we did was to the US, where we had a couple of organizations that we wanted to visit. So we had in Las Vegas, there was Zappos. Um, in a little bit north of uh, LA in Ventura, a company called Patagonia. It's one we visited. Um, I've got a jacket. Around, They're awesome. Yeah. So And also around San Francisco, we had some companies that we wanted to visit. So we took a camper van for about three or four weeks and we traveled around um, uh, California. And yeah, as you probably read in the book, um, we also turned up at Patagonia's doorstep, or not really at their doorstep at first, first at the beach. Um, to also learn from how they were working. Um, and before we were going to work with uh, Patagonia on that, before we were going to interview a lot of people, they took us surfing in the early morning uh, to experience what Patagonia is actually about. Um, so enjoying the outdoors in a responsible, sustainable way. So that was a cool, yeah, that was the first time actually that the camper van came into play for corporate rebels. And now we take that to a new level. Yeah. Is it going to come to London? Yeah, I guess so. Although they recently um, uh, established a train connection, a really good train connection between Holland and London, which takes you in four hours to London, which is, I think, quicker than the plane um, mm. and also more sustainable and definitely more sustainable than our camper van. So I think next time we try to, try to take the train. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and you start to enumerate some of the I suppose the trends that you see, don't you talk about the eight, eight trends that you, you've noticed in, in conclusion from studying all of these, these places? What, what, yeah, what emerges as the, the, the most important trends, I suppose, from your perspective? Yeah, it's hard to say which are the most important because it depends too much on which type of organization you look at. Um, first of all, we talk about eight trends, but I want to make clear that there's, those trends are not something that you just have to do as an organization in order to be a happy or successful workplace. If there's anybody ever telling you something that they have found the like the golden uh, the rules for organizing or the golden key and then please don't believe them um what we talk about is what do we see in these organizations that organize themselves quite different so 
Um, for example, we see a move from profit to purpose and values. Our profit is still highly important, but organizations exist for something more meaningful than that. So they have a clear purpose, um, a direction that um, they want to take their employees, their customers, their suppliers towards. And they rally their people around that purpose with a clear set of values. Um, um, and profit, as I mentioned, is very important still, but it's not the reason they exist. So um, that's one of the trends we see. Another one is that we see is where organizations move away from the hierarchical pyramid where you have the CEO on top, lots of management layers in between, often divided into functional departments where everybody's focused on optimizing their specific part of the work. And we see that these more progressive organizations move away from that and they form into what we call a network of team structure where um, people mostly work together in teams of 10 to 15 people and they really run their team as if it was a separate business. So they are in charge of making all important decisions when it comes to hiring, firing, working hours, uh, salary setting, all of these things. So a lot of the decision-making is pushed towards the front line and the people that are actually doing most of the work. So these are just two of these trends and there are six more. Um, um, and it's, it's hard to say which ones are more important because it depends too much on the type of organization and also the people working in those organizations. So it's too, it's not impossible for me to say that for somebody else or for another organization yeah and i suppose what's what might be good to understand is which was the the one time where you went into an organization and because you, you obviously you, you've been around some of these ideas for a while now where you were you were blown away and you were like wow they they really have taken this to next level here is, was there a moment like that on your trips yeah quite a lot actually so at first before we started we just knew it from books and we had some document seen some documentaries on workplaces that are quite different but we thought and we were a bit skeptic by nature so we thought okay it's um nice that those organizations um seem to be there it's nice that there's a lot of people who love to write books about them but we thought the stories in those books might actually be a bit nicer than the actual work environment that's why also we thought it was an important thing for us to actually visit all of those workplaces instead of just copying what other people had written about them. So. Um, sometimes, obviously, there was a disappointment. Uh, for example, when we visited Google's headquarters in, uh, in California, it was a bit of a disappointment because obviously Google is quite well known for how they work and how progressive they've been. Nowadays, it's under a bit more scrutiny and they show that they're maybe backing away from some of these core values that they had in the beginning. Uh, but at the same well, time, that might be interesting for people because Google is such yeah. an iconic brand for people. What's, what's a specific example of where you saw them backing away? Well, one of their or the, the reason they exist, at least in the beginning, they say their purpose is about making the information um, um, available, making all the information in the world available to people. Um, so you can easily find the information you're looking for, which is quite a noble pursuit. But when we went there, first of all, we had a very hard time getting in. So they weren't that transparent. And then we talked to some people there. We also went a bit under the radar to just via via get connected to some people who wanted to show us around and who wanted to tell us more about their experience working at Google. And they wanted to give you one very specific example. After we did an interview with one person, we said, okay, can we email you the blog post that we're going to write about this? Um, so you can actually check for any mistakes that we might've made or wrong assumptions that we've made. And that person literally said, no, please don't send it back to me because they can probably trace that back to me. And if you write anything negative about how we work here, that's probably going to come back to me. So this shows you that there was a, quite some fear for people to actually speak up um, and to be open and honest about their working or their way of working at Google. So first, it was, it was a very clear sign that some things were wrong and that we saw more over that time, that it was kind of more hierarchical than we've seen before, and that some of the practices that Google is well known for, for example, the 20% rule where people get to spend 20% of their time working on projects they thought were good for Google, but weren't necessarily in their job description. Well, it showed, or when we were there, uh, all, almost all people said, well, we don't really have that anymore. It was something from the days in the beginning of Google, but not, it's not there anymore. So um, it shows you why it's important to go to these workplaces to actually understand, is it, is it actually like this? Or is it maybe based on some ideal perspective? Or is it maybe something from the past? Right. Yes, and uh, 
Well, that, I suppose chimes with my experience as a consumer as a, of, of Google is there does seem to have been a shift in values to some degree over time. Yeah, you see it also the last couple of months, um, they get quite some, quite some bad publicity also on some of these topics. Like, for example, their other very symbolic practice was their uh, Friday afternoon town hall meeting where everybody from Google could call in um, and um, do an interview or have a sort of town hall session with the leadership of Google where they would share the, uh, all kinds of updates, successes, failures of the company. And people could send in their questions if they wanted to address something to top leadership. But nowadays, because so many political concepts came up in those discussions, they said, we're going to stop doing this because we wanted to focus on the content of our work, so on the products and the services, and not on these political topics that people love to talk about. So you see that they're actually backing away from some of their iconic practices because it, it's becoming too hard for them to sustain them or uh, they feel that it costs them too much effort and too much energy probably to continue doing this um, yeah. while it has been a very powerful thing of their culture for a very long period of time. Right. And, that, and that's, that's probably quite an important point, isn't it? Because, I mean, you talk in the book about open, being openness um, linked to joy um, and motivation linked to transparency. So these these things give us... Um, I suppose what we what we yearn for as human beings, um, but they're quite they're, they're quite, take some effort. Uh, it takes leadership to sustain those types of environments, right? And which maybe we're now seeing with with Google, right? It, it... Yeah, I think so too. And especially if you're a, like such a big company, and there's so much pressure on you, on um, the influence obviously that you have on the world, um, then there's also a a bigger pressure, as you can see, to go back to more traditional ways of working where things become more secret and where things um, therefore seem to be more simply or, or simple in how they are organized to actually sustain this more radical progressive way of working. Um, you have to you definitely need to have leadership in place that stands for this way of working. And even in tough times says, okay, these are our values. This is what we believe in. So we have to stick to them and not, let us uh, um, be pushed away from these these core values, and this is obviously clearly at the moment happening at Google. Right, and you could also imagine how the the, the original leaders of those firms they they stood for some perhaps something like engineering excellence and uh, you know, and and wanting to be of having utility for the world, but as their organisation has has evolved, they're actually having to consider, I suppose, much uh, much more subtle. Um, themes in their leadership it's not just about can I build a website anymore it's can I can I hold space for political dissent for example right I mean these are these are kind of quite much more um, challenging questions for them to face as leaders than perhaps at the beginning yeah yeah definitely and I think it also um, I'm also not a very big fan of these huge companies that have so much influence um, I prefer actually a lot of smaller companies that interact together to move towards specific goals or purposes um, because the big influence that these companies have, I think it's a very unnatural thing um, and it can lead to all kinds of unhealthy behavior because there's so much pressure from all kinds of people on them. Um, so many people are using their platforms and it's really hard to not, um, I think, fall into the trap of making very unhealthy choices for the company itself and also for society. Oh, so you just think size in and of itself creates problems, right? Yeah, I think so. And, um, and there's not a lot of companies that can actually um, um, sustain their core values um, that they had from the beginning if they grow so massively and so quickly. Right. Yeah, I see. Um so that was an example of a bit of a disappointment then. What, what, yes, what really had you, your wow moments? Yeah, for example, one visit we had to um, um, a, a Spanish, uh, a part in Spain, uh, the Basque country around a city called Bilbao. Um, and we visited, but actually after two years, I think, of already traveling around the world to visit all kinds of pioneers. And we um, hadn't really heard of this a uh, group of companies around Bilbao that have been transforming towards a very self-managed way of working. So we heard about them and we were again a bit skeptic because we thought, how can we already be traveling around the world for two years, have a really hard time finding pioneers? Um, 
but then apparently there's this group of more than 50 companies that are doing it around one specific city. Um, so we were a bit skeptic, but obviously we flew over there again to figure it out for ourselves. And we spent a couple of days there in, inside some of these organizations. And we really witnessed something extraordinary where one consulting firm has actually been able to transform more than 70 companies uh, from small to medium sized um, towards a very progressive way of working with um, no management layers um, within their organical uh, structure and with lots of freedom with the frontline staff making all of the important decisions themselves, uh, lots of transparency as well. Um, and so this was very interesting for us to see that we, even in um, um, like geographical areas where you wouldn't really expect such a thing to happen, um, like in a rather traditional part of, uh, of Spain, where you can actually see that um, if you have the right approach, like for example, this consulting firm over there has, you can actually transform a very big group of companies into a more progressive way of working. And we hadn't seen transformation on such a scale before. And I mean, I mean on that scale in so many different companies. Um, so it was really inspiring to see. And especially if you talk to the people who are working there in those companies, how they describe their new way of working, if they compared it to their more traditional hierarchical command and control style structure. And they were super excited about this new way of working and they really couldn't picture uh, themselves going back to these more traditional work environments right yeah so in that moment it makes complete sense you give you give people freedom and eventually they, they're not going to want to not going to want to go back yeah well in the beginning it can be very uh, hard as well for people to get used to that amount of freedom like if you've worked in a specific workplace for 20 years and you never had any freedom and then all of a sudden you transform into this workplace where you can make almost all decisions yourself or with your team um, it's kind of hard to get used to it. And some people, uh, especially there in the bus country, we talked to one lady and she also shared with us, it's a bit like when you move from living with your parents towards living on your own. And she had this metaphor and she said, well, it's, it's more or less the same where when you live with your parents, everything's nicely been taken care of and you don't need to do that much yourself. Um, and you can complain to your parents if, for example, the fridge is empty. Um, if you go and live by yourself, you all of a, a sudden have to take care of everything, everything yourself. You can come home and the fridge is empty, but you can't really complain to anybody else because it's your responsibility to make sure there's food in your fridge. And she said, it's, so in the end, it's more rewarding, but it's not easier per se. So it can be definitely harder to work or to live in such an environment. But at the end, if you learn how to do so, it's also more rewarding than having somebody take care of you and tell you exactly what and how to do it. Right. It reminds me, I've got, I've got a three-year-old son or two. He's nearly three and, and he's learning certain tasks. And once he's mastered it, like now he can take his shoes off. Yeah. And if I come in and I try and try and uh, take his shoes off for him now, he, he, you know, that could trigger a tantrum, right? No, I can do it. I want to do it now. Right. Yeah, now, yeah. I'm, try, I'm trying not to equate my three-year-old with these people, you know, professionals working in space. But that, that idea of once we gain facility with something, we want, we want to continue to, to master whatever it skills, skills it is and continue to enjoy our autonomy once we've achieved it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, it's, uh, I think it's very much the same. We just need to get used to this idea that we can have a lot of autonomy and that we can also handle a lot of responsibility. With a lot of people in traditional organizations, they think we can't, that a lot of people cannot handle responsibility, that they cannot handle freedom and autonomy. But you see if these organizations are able to transform that people actually love it. They get better at what they do. They get more motivated in their work. So it makes a lot of sense to actually do it. Right. And although I get what you said about uh, that there's no sort of prescribed set of trends or behaviors that people need to adopt to achieve these types of workplaces, but it seems like there's a precondition here around trust, right? If you're leading one of these companies, you have to ultimately trust that people are capable and can be trusted with, with autonomy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This is a very important element. A lot of people always ask us, like, will people not abuse this system based on freedom? And well, that is actually the trust that you need to have, that people will not do it. And that if you are able to provide them with the right environment where there's not only freedom and trust, but also responsibility and accountability at the same time, that people also feel and experience this. If you are able to do so, and if you actually trust that people 
are doing the right things when they get that freedom, then you can really be amazed by the outcomes of their work and their, the outcomes of that new work environment. And we've seen it in so many cases where these traditional organizations um, have been able to transform in this more progressive, free uh, way of working. Our people become so much more motivated. They don't call in as much uh, sick as they would before. Um, they're way more uh, engaged with their work and their companies. So they stay longer. Um, all of these things that actually contribute to not only more fun workplaces, but also more successful workplaces. Yeah, and that's the irony here, isn't it? The things that people fear the most when, when giving trust is, that, is actually what shows up in abundance once you give that that trust right yeah. yeah the things that people fear will go wrong is actually what you get back in spades yeah yeah that is, that's the interesting thing yeah. so like, a lot of these pioneers that we talked to call this the uh, organizing for the three percent so there's if you give people a lot of freedom there's probably a small percentage a lot of them estimated to be around three percent will abuse the freedom that you give them but by organizing for the 3% and coming up with all kinds of rules that will tell people exactly how to do it um, so they won't be abusing the system or the freedom, you'll hold back the 97% of the people that would never abuse the amounts of freedom. So by doing that, you think you're very, doing a very good job by keeping those 3% uh, nicely into this framework where they just have to do things according to a certain way, but you hold back 97%. So what if you turn that around and if you actually organize a company based on the belief that 97% of the people will do the right thing if you give them just the trust and the freedom to do so. Might be a small percentage of 3% still abusing that system. But does that really weigh up against each other? So wouldn't it be better to organize for the 97 and just take those 3% uh, um, like just let them be and uh, hope that the system itself will figure that out? Um, and that's what we see in those progressive organizations. Yeah, and that's certainly my experience of having to, spoken to people within these types of organizations is that the system itself self-corrects, self, self right, to some extent. Once you put the transparency in and the openness in, um, people, uh, those around them, peers and the people in those teams act in a way to sort of keep people within social norms, right? Yeah, so in in, there's still some type of control in the organizations, but it's not so much top-down control. Um, it's much more peer-controlled environment where you say, okay, these are, this is the purpose. These are our values. Um, so let's organize ourselves around that. If people are not living up to the values, we have to hold each other accountable for that. And then the, the peer pressure comes into play where we see these organizations, people leave because they just don't feel comfortable working in an environment um, that is not in line with their values. And if somebody is just not fitting with the environment, then you see that if they're organized correctly, that the system itself will push these people out. Yeah, yeah. And the other, the other factor here is that the, I suppose, the custodians of the culture, I'm just thinking in terms of sustainability here, in some of these organizations, or the, the leaders are voted for, right? So it's in, some, in some cases, it's not, it's not just the peer pressure that's applying to, to to maintain the norms it's also the the group selects the leader that they most trust to keep the to perpetuate the culture right yeah and this is actually one of the practices i like the most where you have companies where a team select their own leaders um, and you might think people will just pick the leader that likes to that is the most likable um that's most friendly to everyone else but that's not really not not what's happening in these organizations so they actually pick the people that are best for the team um, so often people have a stake in the outcome as well, either financially or uh, purpose-wise or another way. Um, and then people just decide for the person that they truly think is best able to lead them towards success. Um, and this is this natural way of uh, creating leadership um, in organizations really helps people to be more connected as well and to be more engaged towards um, what that team is trying to do. So it makes, it's also, again, a natural selection. You just enable it by the practices that you have in an organization. So in any group of people, you have people that are taking the lead. You have some people that are more um, uh, doing the following in a, in, a, in a team or in a group. Uh, but this normally happens very organically. 
and if we organize companies traditionally, we appoint a leader and say, okay, you are the boss now and you get to make the important decisions. But this is not natural at all. Like we never do that in a group of friends that we appoint one person and say, okay, now you're in charge. Or that somebody from outside of the group even puts them in charge of the group. It doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. So why do we do that at work? And why do we actually continue to uh, put people in charge of a team that, uh, where a team doesn't have any say whatsoever in who's going to be the person who's leading them? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember having that thought before about when I, if I go skiing with a group of friends, um, the way that we organize ourselves, which is what ultimately quite a complex operation to get a bunch of people to a different country and with the right kit at the right time in the right location. Nobody's, no, yeah, nobody's like formally appointing a manager. Nobody's creating a formal plan. You know, and the, the, the right leader emerges and people take on different tasks voluntarily. And when somebody's not pulling their weight, the kind of the group makes it clear. And it, yeah, it does seem to me like, and you make this point that, that hierarchy is not the problem. It's, it's artificial hierarchy that's the problem. And actually, hum, groups of humans are very capable of creating kind of informal, natural hierarchies according to the context. That if we just let them do it, that, that, that's what emerges. Yeah. So that's, and that's actually the, the, the thing that these organizations try to do. So how can we create an environment where these natural type of behaviors, the natural leadership, natural hierarchies are capable of arising? And so when people talk about these progressive organizations and say, well, there's no hierarchy in these companies, um, and I probably do that as well sometimes, I don't really mean that there's no hierarchy whatsoever. There's just a more natural type of hierarchy, as you say, not a artificial hierarchy where we appoint people because you can't really imagine a ski trip like that working if for example another group of people who has more influence or makes more money gets to decide which person is going to take your group of friends to a ski uh, trip doesn't make a whole lot of sense right exactly exactly and yeah no i i think that makes sense the other example that always comes to mind is i went on one of these men's weekends one right all men and we you know we, we spend the we spend the weekend in the woods and at the start of this weekend we're all invited to sit in a sorry stand in a circle <clears throat> and silently with no communication whatsoever we had to pick the leader for the weekend and each person in the circle had to sit down as they became aware that no this isn't me right <laughs> And there was, and I was left in this kind of ego battle with this other guy, two of us standing. And finally, I accepted. I was like, "Okay, no, 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 Richard, you're not the guy." It was just so clear. I sat down, and the guy standing, and that was our leader. And it—that's without even speaking, we'd work that out, right? And I we'd never met like before. It. I do think there's just this innate sense we have of who's who's in charge here, right? I, I think we know it. Yeah, and it also might differ a lot on which, uh, as you mentioned before, also on the context. So in some specific uh, um, teams, for example, you have one person taking the lead on one topic and another per person taking the lead on a completely other topic. So it, it depends much more on just these natural uh, hierarchies to arise based on knowledge, based on experience, based on leadership skills. It depends on which kind of situation you're looking at, of course. Yeah, exactly. Now you've got so that we've we've talked a lot about the book and you've got corporate corporate rebels the company and you you starting to grow the company is that right? Yep, we're still quite small, but we're <laughs> we're starting to grow. Yeah. And so, what have you? I suppose what have you been able to apply so far from what you've what you've learned from other companies? Um, we're always very conscious about the fact that we shouldn't be just people who write and talk about this topic and then not do it. Um, that, would make, uh, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Also, because we truly believe uh, 100% that this, these, these eight trends can really create an amazing work environment. So it's something that we naturally would try to do anyways in an organization, but we are even more conscious about the fact that we need to be ourselves setting the example as well um, towards others that uh, love to work, uh, read about our work, for example, or love to follow the work that we do to set the right example and to show, okay, these are the stuff that we're working on and we continuously try to push the boundaries ourselves as well. So um, some of the things we do is, for example, 20 um, um, or 10% of our profits go to the Corporate Rebels Foundation, which is aimed at uh, making work better around the world. So improving working conditions around the world for specific projects. And um, that's something that we uh, started doing as of last year. 
um, everything we do ourselves is also very much focused towards that purpose of making work more fun. That's what we call it here at Corporate Rebels. So if you look at our company, we're about making work more fun, um, not the superficial kind of fun, but really contributing to more meaningful work, all the stuff that we just talked about. And we, with everything we do, our work focuses on exactly that. If something doesn't really fit with that, we simply don't do it. Even if it could potentially bring in a lot of money, it's not something that we are here to do. Um, if you look at, for example, the freedom, where well, we talked about the camper van, but at the same time, uh, people can just work from wherever, whenever they want. We don't track working hours. We don't track vacation days, um, uh, which is not always a good thing, I can tell you, because it's really hard for people to take vacation days if you have unlimited amount. Um, we'll only look at results, so it doesn't really matter how many hours a week you work. If you bring in the results that we all agree upon as a team, then it's perfectly fine in how many hours or with how much effort you do that. Um, we're fully transparent, so we share all the financials. Well, Joost and myself are the ones who have uh, ownership of the company. The people who work with us um, have full transparency on all the profits, how they're distributed. Um, there's profit sharing for the people that work. Um, in the company as well. Um, we constantly experiment with new things. So obviously there's also a lot of things that are completely crap still at the moment in how we work. So we're also learning a lot every week, every month, every year. So at the moment we're working hard to improve um, the psychological safety because the people who are more junior or who have been joining more recently have quite a hard time sometimes speaking up. Um, I'm 100% sure that's also partly due to how Yoast and myself are. So we can express ourselves very bluntly and this makes it sometimes hard for people to um, speak their minds. So we're working hard to, on giving constant feedback, quick feedback to one another um, and being ourselves more open and more uh, vulnerable as well makes it also easier for other people to do the same thing. And every month we set ourselves new experiments to improve our ways of working and to improve our working practices ourselves. Oh, excellent. Um, and that vulnerability, I mean, you talk about uh, in the book a bit of, about, I can't remember the example now about f f sharing fuck-ups. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I thought I'd ask you actually, if you're prepared to go here, you know, what, what, what would you say your biggest, biggest fuck-up to date is so far with building corporate rebels? Um, phew, we made quite a few, but the biggest one of the last couple of months is the fact that we, um, we set up a, a consulting company as well, Revolt. Um, but we've recently decided to stop doing that, uh, mainly coming from the people who were setting up that company because there wasn't a very clear, um, how do you say that, alignment of where they wanted to take this and how they were working together to achieve this. Um, and I think from our side, it feels a bit like a fuck up because it's not the way how we wanted to organize that. Um, and we could have definitely done a better way ourselves in that to be more part of that process already from the very start um, and to influence it more heavily, I think, when it comes to the values of the company um, and also providing more coaching, more support in that. So uh, that's one of the more serious fuck ups, but we also have lots of small ones all the time. Every week, I guess a couple last week, I, a very simple thing like I, forgot to save the blog post that I was writing. So I just wasted four hours of my day and my life oh, writing God, something and then deleting it completely. We've all been there. Yeah, we've yeah. all been there. So it's, it's from very big ones to very small ones. And we, every Friday afternoon, um, we share the fuck-ups that we made during that week, whether big or small, doesn't really matter. So every Friday afternoon, we finish the week doing that. Um, besides sharing successes, also sharing the fuck-ups. And it helps people to be more comfortable doing it and to tr more easily try things that might not work. Right. And it actually reminds me, I've had a few uh, ex-military people on the show, and that reminds me a lot of the military culture where there's a, there's a v or I'm not sure if this is across the whole military, but certainly it seems to be quite prevalent, is that people, people are very open. Yeah, we screwed up. We fucked up there. We screwed up there. And let's, let's talk about it. Uh, you know, and, and interestingly, the military is not where you'd go, go looking for non-hierarchical cultures, but very often they're, they're, they're uh, very open and in a sense, non-hierarchical. Yeah. And because they also figure out, and we also have some of these um, organizations on our bucket list. Um, so they can be very pioneering because they see, they figure out that they, if they organize very hierarchically and very traditionally, 
they cannot adapt quickly, which is something they definitely have to do if they're fighting against an enemy. So they figure out that they have to also continuously improve their working practices. And they also move towards these more progressive ways of working where they feel, okay, a very directive leadership doesn't make a lot of sense if people are in very complex situations. They need to be able to make decisions themselves very quickly. Um, so they also figure out that they have to change a bit their way of working. And uh, as you mentioned also after, for example, if they go on a mission and they come back, like there's often very clear, uh, transparent and open feedback after such sessions. Like what can we do better? It's not about blaming somebody for something they might have done wrong, but it's about having an open and honest conversation. What can we actually do different and better next time? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yes, so, so I think that's right. And I've, as, are you finding that people have adapted to that, that fuck up Friday thing? Is are people, some more willing than others to share? How's that, how's that gone? You mean individually? Yeah. Yeah, for some, obviously, in the beginning, it's harder, but it doesn't take that long for people to get used to it because it's really, um, if, if you see other people doing it every single week, um, then it becomes very uh, com comfortable to also share yours uh, very quickly. So in the beginning, it might be a bit uncomfortable, but especially if you see people who founded the company, um, but also people who are new, who all share their fuck-ups, then it's very easy to just join join along and to share yours as well. Right. And what, what, what about the situation where somebody feels like, okay, there was this fuck up, but I think that it's sometimes, isn't it unavoidable that, that the source of it is with one person? Uh, and, and then maybe that could be with, with you or used. And what do you find those situations where people sort of have to feel their way through a bit? Um, so you mean if a fuck up more belongs to somebody else? Yeah, then... but 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 that person's not sharing it. Yeah, then, but then we don't really share it during that session. So we have more the we try to give feedback as instantly as possible, but that's easier said than done. So because especially if you're in a heated moment, it's really hard to then say, okay, I want to discuss this on a deeper level. Sometimes you just need to wait a little bit for that. I know that with my uh, domestic. Yeah, <laughs> <situation>. <laughs> <Can imagine. laughs> Um So. Uh, we during the fuck up Fridays, we you can only share like your personal fuck ups or a fuck up that you have been a part of yourself. So you cannot say, okay, Yoast, you completely fucked this up this week. That's something you can do in during feedback sessions or you just discuss it one on one. Uh, we don't want to do that in the group. Um, just share the ones that you think you should share. And if somebody doesn't share theirs, then it's something to pick up on the feedback session. Right. Yeah. Um. And, and just circling back quickly to the revolt example, something that struck me there as you, you were sharing was that, again, the, the creating these these cultures, it, it's almost like, and I remember having this conversation um, uh, with Amy, whose surname's just gone, who's, who who did a lot of the work on psychological safety. And Amy it's almost, Emerson. Amy Emerson, yeah, who's a previous guest. Thank you, sorry. And she, she talks about, um, it's almost like it's a kind of a fragile state at least initially right it, it takes it's, i almost picture it like a garden it's something, it's something you've got to really nurture it initially um to get the culture that kind of culture right and is is it something like that that you learned that you just didn't put enough energy in initially to get the culture right yeah definitely because it's um it's so easy to say to people just speak up if you don't agree especially like like we started the company so then we um when new people come in obviously it's more uncomfortable uncomfortable for them to speak up and to be completely open and honest so very easily these people can go into a situation where they say okay i'm not i cannot i feel i cannot say anything um or i feel like i cannot say everything and we would then be in a position uh, just speak up just be transparent we do that so you can do it too that's not enough. So, and we figured that out along the way um, in sometimes a painful situation where you really think, okay, the psychological safety and the way we give feedback to one another and the way we can share really our deepest feelings is not on the level that we want it to be. So we learned a lot from that, that we indeed need to be very much more a part of that and creating that environment. And once the environment is there, then we can maybe step back and let people do it themselves more. But if we really want to create organizations ourselves as well, 
that are based around this cultural feedback and psychological safety. And we need to also put more effort into creating it first. And as you say, making sure it's, it's established like that and only then step back. And maybe we step back in this instant, uh, in this example too quickly. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it yeah, it's in accordance with what I, Amy was talking about because she, she talks about this asymmetry in psychological safety where, um, initially, uh, if I speak up and get castigated, I mean, I risk shame, right? I risk shame um, in the moment. Um, so that th there's an immediate downside risk if I speak up because somebody might tell me to shut up. Um, but my benefits can only occur to me in the long term, right? I say something that's a valuable contribution and somehow that benefits me down the line. So if I, in the moment when I do that analysis, it's much better by default to shut up, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Because... On the, I've got this negative risk of immediate shame and, and only a, a long-term positive risk. So, so it's almost like she was saying, I don't know if she precisely said this, but certainly that's what I took from it, was that our default almost as a, as a human dynamic is low psychological safety until we learn enough times that speaking up isn't going to get ashamed and ultimately is going to give us benefit in the long run and there's, there's really no downside risk because then, then, we'll, then we will continue to speak up. Yeah. Yeah, and I nowadays I can see that much clearer as we have experienced it ourselves. And in the beginning, we just said, okay, we dare to speak up, so probably other people dare to speak up as well. Uh, that wasn't really the case. So nowadays we're focusing much more efforts ourselves as well on what can we constantly do on a weekly, daily, monthly basis to make sure people feel more comfortable. So we have some really young people who just left um, university working for, with us now. And they um, also come into the workplace um, and also they have to get used to the fact that they ju just can say whatever they want. In fact, that it is very much appreciated if they share stuff they don't like, that they really like, that they're frustrated with, all of these things. Um, so yeah, it is a constant process of improving and we're definitely not there, but I think on the last couple of months, um, during the last couple of months, we made some really big steps by constantly having conversations around it in a very structured way. So also making clear that we have fixed moments in the day, in the week, in the month to discuss topics like this, topics like this, and then also evaluate as a team, how are we doing now? Are we improving? Are we getting worse? What do we need to do to do it better? Um, and that has been really helpful over the last couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And as you can say, saying that it's, it's almost, yeah, you can imagine how it's, it's built into most human systems actually, because I, I suppose normally it will be the leaders will be those who are most confident, most willing to speak up, uh, have the most courage in, in, in sort of going against the, the social norms and their blind spot almost automatically will be that not everybody's going to be as they're just assuming if people are quiet, it's just because they don't have anything to say, not because they might be intimidated by the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I can. Yeah, I can see that. And so we have to take active steps to create the environment where people aren't intimidated in that way. Yeah, exactly. And you have to show yourself very much that you're also okay with feeling uncomfortable and that it's normal to do that, that you can also share your frustrations that you have and also share the vulnerabilities that you have. And it's a very powerful way to get other people to do the same thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that, the, I mean, I know we've ended up talking a lot about psychological safety, but I, I, I really feel like it's going to be such a differentiator for companies because, I mean, I was in a, in a cafe um, right next door to, a, to um, a big media organization in the UK recently. And I overheard one of the, the young, she was a young journalist talking and she was so frustrated that she couldn't get her stories on air because she just feared that the senior editor, every time she was going to make the suggestion of a story, would get shouted out in the meeting. So she'd just given up making these suggestions in the big editor meeting. This yeah. organization has a problem with connecting with youth audiences, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so how many times is that replicated across large organizations? I mean... Yeah, um, you can't even imagine, I guess. Yeah, yeah not, exactly. It's, it's happening everywhere, I think. Which is also why, and I think it's important, like the work Amy Edmondson is doing on this topic, um, it's so important at the moment. And it's also why I think it's so popular at the moment, because a lot of people experience this in workplaces, the fact that they cannot feel they can speak up and that they cannot share um, their, their, their biggest um, vulnerabilities with one another. So I think it's good that it's becoming more popular because we need to do something about this too. Yeah. 
It's like it's a, and we, 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 I got to this place with Amy Edmonds. It's like free speech for the word for the workplace, right? It's free, yeah. it's, it's free speech for organizations. Yeah, and it's not, yeah, like free speech is one. And the other th- elements that we see, um, um, where, for example, in society, we hate uh, dictatorship and we try to bring all kinds of countries around the world towards democracy. And when you look into the way organizations are structured, that's still very, uh, dictatorial where you have one person at the top making all the important decisions mostly himself sometimes herself and which is which doesn't make a whole lot of sense why don't we involve people to a higher extent why don't we let them decide on for example who's going to lead them so we can learn quite a lot from um, democracy and society and see how we can also translate some of these principles more into the into the workplace yeah and and that yeah, and I remember having that conversation with uh, Tom van der Lupo, I know you know, is a yeah. Dutch compatriot. But he makes this point very powerfully, how you know, business can learn from the state. And uh, it, it, the modern state has um, outlived many, many organizations, right? They're much more resilient as a, as a structure in many ways than most of our organizations. Yeah, definitely not ideal, not perfect, but <laughs> no, no, no. for sure closer than dictatorship. Yeah, yeah we should, I suppose we should uh, be very careful about which aspects of <laughs> yeah, which state exactly. we choose to highlight. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay, so I know you've got, a, you've got your, um, we, we've, we've got limited time here. So um, for people who want to learn more about your work, there's Make Work More Fun available on all good bookstores. Yep. Yeah, the book is actually called Corporate Rebels. The oh, it's called, sorry, yes, uh, yes, yeah, right. Well, yeah, well, it's well, a bit it's, complicated. It's complicated, we, uh, okay, yeah. So the yeah. book is called Corporate, Corporate Rebels. Yeah. Um, there's the website where you blog uh, for, 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 you know, and you write very well. I must say I've always enjoyed your writing before we got you on the show. You and uh, you, you st- Is there anything else, any other resources you might point people to? Uh, I think on a the website there's everything people uh, um, can learn about the stuff that we do, so... And especially if people are looking for uh, lots of content on these pioneers, everything's free and out in the open there. So that would be a good starting point for sure. Okay. Well, Pim, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated the the conversation. Um, Thank you. Happy to have been on the show and have a chat with you. Excellent. And we'll, we'll put all those links in the description as well. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.